We're in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, picking up really a thread that we started with last week at the head of this chapter, looking at the first four verses of Ephesians 4, verses that, well, focused on the unity of the church, that the church is it's been brought together in a, in a unity by the Spirit. He says in verse 3, in the bond of peace, you are one body and you are one spirit. There is one faith, there is one baptism. The emphasis of that whole section is on the unity of, of the church. And interestingly, Paul's continuing with that theme in the section that we're in this morning, but in a very different way. He's going to show us that there is a, a unity in the body of Christ that is bound up in the diversity within the body of Christ. That this unity is not a, it's not a sameness. There is a, a, a dizzying array of, of gifts and a, a teeming um, kaleidoscope, we might say, of diversity that's within the body of, of Christ that is a part of its unity. That's not, it's not meant to in any way bring division, but is meant to bring and even increase the sense of our unity as one body together in Christ. You know, they were struck by that very point this week when we pulled up the carpet in this room and just saw these heart pine floors. And uh, there was supposed to, just so you know, in the interest of full disclosure, there was supposed to be carpet right now in this room. And, and when... The carpet got pulled. You know that beautiful purple carpet that was here? It's in such great condition. Do you remember that carpet? Um, when that was pulled up this, this week, uh, we had a, a moment to have to make a decision. Mm. Are we putting carpet right back down, or are we going to think about this for a, a, a hot second? And, and it, was a, it was a hot second. And, and when I saw, when I saw in the pine floors, the worn spaces where the feet of worshipers decades and decades ago now shuffled in the pews and considered the praises that had now for nearly 175 years been sung in in this room, I thought to myself, we, we can't cover that up. That has to live. There's a legacy here. We've been, we've been made stewards of a history of where the truth and the Spirit have come together in the hearts of His people. It was reminded of that this week again when on Wednesday I was down at Briarwood Presbyterian Church. Many of you heard the, the news that in 
Well, in hardly 24 hours, we lost two incredible giants in the faith, in our denomination, but even more broadly in the evangelical and reformed world of our generation. Tim Keller, the longtime senior minister at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, who died after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. And then a dear friend and a mentor, Harry Reader, Dr. Harry Reader III, had a tragic car accident on a treacherous road in Birmingham and immediately went from the front seat of the driver's side car that he was in into the presence of the Lord. Happened in about 24 Hours. And I was reminded of the legacy of faith that has been given to us. You know, being in that sanctuary this week on Wednesday, and it was, it was packed to the hilt. If you've been in that sanctuary, you know that's saying something. And there was a whole section for uh, ministers and, and elders um, just to sit in because they, they wanted to reference the ministers and elders at a point in, in the service, and, and the, the section was, wasn't large enough for all the, the ministers and, and elders that were there. And, and just one right after another, having conversations about the ministry of, of Harry. I mean, I have a text message that I'll probably keep in my phone right now from two days before his death. From Harry, as we're talking about a, a church in Asheville, North Carolina, that's looking for a minister, and he was asking, do you have a name? We would love to see a godly man serve here in the next generation, serving the kingdom of God, not just in Briarwood, serving all over. He was 75 years old. And, and it took, I will say, it was, we, we, we had holy laughter for a moment, on Wednesday, when you know the story of his of his death, he 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 ran into the back of a dump truck, and we said, "If you know Harry, you know he's a he was a man's man. He was the kind he was the kind of man who who well, he walked in a room and the whole temperature of the room changed. He had the gift of presence, and we just said to ourselves, you know." It took a dump truck to take out Harry Reader. <laughs> it took a dump truck. It was not going to be any old car or truck. It, was, it took a dump truck to take out Harry Reader. No, that's all right. And as we're talking there, all of the ministers and, and elders, to a, to a man, the, the words that kept coming out of your mouth was like, he was so available to us. Like he took incredible interest. I mean, he answered the phone calls. He would show up at our, at our church. He would check in on us. He was, I mean, this is a man who's pastoring arguably the largest congregation in the PCA. He's, it's unbelievably busy. And here were all of us of little, little up and comings in which he poured out his life, cared for, and served. To whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is 
required. Cornerstone, much has been given to you. There are generations of people who sat where you sat, and they sit, believe it or not, in those very same pews. That's why they creak the way that they creak. That's why those spots on the floor are, are worn out. And, the, and those, those worn out spots on the floor, well, I, don't, I don't know about you, but they're beautiful to me. They're, they're beautiful to me. There's, there's, a beauty, there's a beauty in that wornness. The, the, the polyurethane is, is gone. What has, what has remained has been the legacy of, of worship that these floors and walls hold. It run much deeper than the surface veneer of the wood. To whom much is given. And much is required. Paul, in this passage in Ephesians chapter 4, he wants us to know that the church has gifts. And those gifts are meant to be used for the building up of the body of Christ in love. That we would grow from being children into mature Christians. Having the shape and the form of the likeness of Jesus all about us. That's what Paul is going to press in on us today in this text from Ephesians 4. He wants to tell you that. And so as we turn our attention to this this word from Ephesians chapter 4, have all of that, well, have it rattling around in your mind as we look at this text together. We'll pick up the reading in verse 7. This is God's word. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he descended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? And he who had descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we believe that. And we would ask that this word which has been proclaimed within these walls, heard by worshipers for 175 plus years, would today 
again be heard. And that on this Pentecost Sunday, that enlivening and powerful work of the Holy Spirit, of making Jesus Christ known to us in and through the preaching of the Word of God, would come in power upon our hearts. Unbuild barriers towards the work of your Word right now. Put down defenses in our hearts. Send the dove that He might descend and light on our hearts together, we pray. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the, the memory of our dear brother Harry Reader and all that he meant to me, I couldn't help this week, but structure this sermon according to a Harry Reader type sermon. If you had ever heard Harry preach, you know that he was a master of alliteration. Like it just oozed out of him. It does not ooze out of me. But we're going to try. We're going to start by looking at the church's master. The church's master, as he's presented here in this text. And we're going to move rather swiftly to the church's ministry. We're going to move then to the church's mission, and we'll end by looking at the church's measure. That's right. All M's for you today. Master, ministry, mission, and measure. Who knows? I might end with a poem. We'll see what happens. Well, the church's master. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, did you catch that really unusual section here in Ephesians chapter 4? Well, of course you did. As we were working our way through it, you were saying to yourself, what in the world does that mean? That, that parenthetical section, and before that, the quoting of Psalm 68, when it says there in verse 8 that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. It's a quote from Psalm 68. It's, it's relating actually to Moses and Mount Sinai. It's going back to the people of Israel coming out of the coming out of the exodus. They were slaves in Egypt. They were the captives that are being spoken of there. And he led the captives out. That's what Moses did. And then what did Moses do? Well, he, as, he ascended. He ascended uh, into Mount Sinai. And as they were coming out of exodus, what did they receive? They received gifts from the people that were from the hands of the Lord. And the Lord gave the gift of the law coming through the ministry of Moses. He gave gifts to men. That's what the whole of the section relates to. But that's not what Paul means. Paul, Paul's doing what apostles do. And that is, he's thinking biblically, redemptively. He's thinking about the story of redemption. He's thinking about what happened for the people of Israel in the Old Testament under the exodus of Moses. And he's, he's saying something is like unto that here when I think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because not only has he led captives out, those who were trapped in sin and, and death, but he now has ascended to the heavenly places. He's ascended to Mount Zion. And as he ascends to Mount Zion, what does he do? He gives gifts to men. What's the gift that he gives to men? Well, he gives to men the Holy Spirit. Isn't it, isn't it fascinating that on 
Pentecost Sunday. Here we are in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. And we're talking about the ascension of Jesus Christ. And we're talking about the falling of the Holy Spirit at, at Pentecost. And some of you are thinking, well, of course you planned that. Well, I'm not smart enough to plan these things. I literally on Monday was reading through and I left, well, isn't this a kind providence? That the Lord has brought together these themes together in Ephesians chapter 4. Praise be to his name. Here we are talking about ascension and Pentecost, unplanned and unthinking in terms of where we would land actually on, on the day. But the Lord has us focused here on the gift of the Holy Spirit to, well, to the church. That's what we are. We are the church of the living God. Now, what's remarkable about that is, well, I can't help but think, I guess, of the disciples when they heard that Jesus was going to leave them. It was not happy news. Jesus, in John chapter 16, as he shares with his disciples that he's going to, to die, he's going to, to be crucified, he's going to be rejected by the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, and on the third day he's going to He's going to rise again, and then later he's going to go away. He's going, to, he's going to rise. He's going to ascend into the heavenly places, and they can't go with him where it is that he's going to go. And the disciples are taking this in, and they're not taking this in. They're, they're hearing it, and they're trying to process it, but they don't understand what all is, is going on. But then Jesus says, in the midst of these bewildering announcements of his death and resurrection and ascension, as the, the heads of the disciples are spinning, Jesus then says to his disciples, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. Now just imagine these disciples, they've spent three years with the Lord Jesus Christ. They have, they have paced with him in his ministry. They've seen the ups and the downs. They've devoted the whole of their lives to him. They've left their livelihoods. They've left their families behind to follow Jesus. They they have visions of grandeur. We see that in other passages, like when James and John asked to sit at the right hand of, of, of the Lord Jesus in, in heaven. And when you come into your, your kingdom, they, they think that it's all, it's all upward from, from here. And then Jesus has dashed all of their hopes. And he says, I'm going to a place that you cannot go. But, but listen, take heart. It's better that I'm not with you. What? How could it be better that the Lord Jesus is not with us? He says, well, because you're going to receive the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, who is the helper, He's going to give you gifts. He's going to give you gifts. He's going to give you gifts that if I were to stay with you, you wouldn't receive. Because the gifts that are coming for you in the Spirit are gifts that must come on the other side of my enthronement. They've got to come on the other side of the Father granting to me the name that is above every name. They've got to come on the other side of the fact that I'm at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning on high, that every Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow that I am Lord. It's got to come on the other end of that 
that victory, that culmination. You see, the ascension is not Jesus escaping. It's Jesus carrying the spoils of his victory into the proper authority and rule and reign on high so that he can give to his church all the gifts that they need. That's what's happening, you see. He says, I can't give you the Spirit and all of the gifts until I'm in the powerful place of authority to do so. So I've got to leave you. You can't come with me, but it's a good thing. It's to your advantage. It's to your, to your betterment. And, the, you know, the disciples are not believing him. But they will. They'll learn the truth of Pentecost. They'll learn, even at a deeper sense, what Jesus would mean in John 14, 12, when he will say another outlandish comment. When he, when he says, you know, you're going to do greater things than I've done. You're going to do, you're going to do greater things than, than, than I have done. It's important that I go away so that you can do greater things than I've done. Now, what in the world is Jesus saying? Like, you know, I said, in the, I said in the early service, the, these comments, it's better that I go away. You're going to do greater things than me. It, these go into the ludicrous bucket, right? I mean, the disciples are hearing this and they're going, that's just crazy talk. What in the world would Jesus mean that you're going to do greater things than, than me? Well, clearly he doesn't mean that there's something lacking in the cross and the resurrection. There's something lacking in my own future ascension at this point that he talks in John 14 so much so that, that I've not secured for you salvation or that the gospel is not really yet good, good news. You're going to have to do greater things than this in order for salvation to really happen. Of course he's not saying that. This work is finished, as he says on the cross. He's completing it. He's victorious over sin and death. What does he mean? Well, he means what we begin to see in Acts chapter 2. When, when the Holy Spirit falls and Peter and Matthew and John and the disciples are preaching the gospel and they're doing so with flames of fire above their head and they're speaking in tongues that they, they did not know known languages but language that were unknown to them, a gift of tongue that was given to the disciples so that the nations who were then in Jerusalem, there for the Passover, there for the celebration, that they could hear in their own tongue the gospel of Jesus Christ going forth at the advent of the church age. And in that moment, 3,000 are saved. You, you church, are going to take the gospel to much greater ends than I ever did. When I roamed on a little sliver of land in the Middle East for 30 some odd years. You are going to take it to the then known world. You're going to see the movement of the gospel unlike Anything that has been seen, even in my own time in ministry, you'll do greater things than me. How will you do it? By the gifts of the Spirit. That's how you'll do it. It's better that I go away from you. I want you to see the church's master there, you see. I want you to see the church's master in that. Because I, I would imagine that sometimes you're discouraged about the church. Maybe especially as you look 
at the church at large in, in North America and you see maybe a lack of earnestness, a lack of commitment, you see indifference, you see compromise, you see a lack of influence in the culture at, at large and you, have, you find maybe in your own mind and heart a wistfulness about a yesteryear when things were better than they are now. Maybe some of you have that notion rattling around in your, your heart and you think to yourself, oh, the church is just not what it, what it used to be. I, I, want, I want you to pause for a second. As much as there is truth in different degrees and measures, in maybe statements that were just made regarding the, the church, I, I want you to have a longer perspective of what the Lord is doing in the life of the, the church. You know that Christ, don't you? He's playing the long game. You, you never know the fruit of a church or ministry in the time period in which you live. I guess you don't have, the sampling is too small. You're not sure, but I will tell you this, when you look throughout human history and you consider that when Jesus was ascending into the heavenly places, he had 12 disciples and maybe a few hundred other people that might have been in the circle of those who were somewhat failingly, stumblingly committed to him. I'd say 2,000 years later, we're doing pretty good. I would say the growth of the gospel from the first century until 2,000 years later that is spread throughout the world globally where there's more Christians today on planet earth than there ever has been in human history before, we should say, I think that Jesus' mission is being accomplished. It's a long game, isn't it? The church is going to always have trouble. G.K. Chesterton said, uh, years, years ago, with, I think, prescient kind of wisdom here where he acknowledged that the church is in its own time and every time in which it lives, it's a perpetually defeated entity. You know, this is why it helps to be a student of history because you, you'll look at your own time and you'll be just like, things are terrible. And then you look back in time and you know what every generation has said? Things are terrible. Things are terrible. The church is going to utterly collapse. It's, it's over. This is the end. We're one generation from losing the essence of the gospel, right? Those things. Now, there are real waxes and wanes in different locations throughout the world where that dynamic does ebb and flow. But overall, the recognition is that the calling of the church is continued to broad, continue to strengthen, and continue to spread throughout where the curse is found. And that's why Chesterton can say, in your own time, the church is a perpetually defeated entity. But then he says this, listen, that always outlives its victor. Catch that. How many times have movements come along? Oh, well, God is dead. Oh, we know that the Bible, you know, it's not God's Word. It's treated like literature. It's a great history volume, great mythology. Think of all of the aberrant heresies and movements and the attacks upon the church throughout the ages. Oh, in a generation, you know, no one will believe in Christianity anymore. 
a perpetually defeated entity that, well, what were those movements? Oh, those movements, oh, they're dead, aren't they? Well, yeah, those are the movements that we've now come past. And let's look, is there still a church? It's almost as if Christ is in control of it. It's almost as if he is the master of the church. That the church is careening, about to fall, about to collapse. And it's the victor, the victor who finds him or herself dead at the end of it all. It's because Christ is the master of the church, you see. Let's play for the long game. Let's play for the long game. That's the game that Jesus is playing. I want you to see, secondly, the church's ministry. We see the church's master. Let's see the church's ministry. He says there in verse 7 that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Oh, what a marvelous juxtaposition this is. Grace is given to each one of us. Notice that language, each one of us. He's not used that kind of language so far in Ephesians chapter 4. He's been using language of all or one, speaking in wholes and unities. Now what's he doing? He's speaking in individuals. He's speaking particular. He's speaking of specifics. He's now moved, not necessarily topics, but the way in which he's addressing the topic. And he wants you to know that the church is not only a whole in terms of its corporate identity, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, but that every single member, each of us, has been given a grace gift. That grace gift has come from the Holy Spirit. It started at Pentecost. You know when Peter was preaching that now famous sermon in Acts chapter 2. He didn't preach that sermon because he had, he had secretly downloaded Rosetta Stone and had learned the languages of the ancient Near East and he was looking for an opportunity to surprise everyone. That's not what happened. This was not an innate ability. This was not something studied or trained. This was a gift of the Holy Spirit. He was speaking in the world. The nations literally that had come to Jerusalem were hearing the gospel in their own tongue. And part of what we're seeing here in Acts 2 and we're seeing here in Ephesians chapter 4 is this, this dizzying array of gifts and work of the Holy Spirit bringing unity to the body of Christ through a variety of gifts. Notice that language he's it's each one according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Christ is measuring these gifts out. Why is Christ? Well, he's on the throne. He's the king. He owns everything. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's what he says at the end of Matthew. And so he's portioning out these gifts. He's got the spoils of victory. And he's portioning out the gifts through the power of the, the Spirit who's informing the, the church. And he says, I've given each and every one of you a gift. Now, that gift is not the same. I've portioned them out. I've measured them, them out. There's a dizzying array. There's a wide diversity. It's, it's, a, it's a quite a collection of gifts that I'm giving to the church through the, through the Spirit. And not only that, I'm measuring that gift out differently to different people. So for instance, people might have the same gifts, but they may not have the same measure of those gifts. 
or the same degree of those gifts. Those gifts are going to be differently expressed in the different people whom the Lord has made. Those gifts are going to have different impact than the impact of, of, of the varieties of people that he's, that he's made. I, I was struck, right? There in at Briarwood on, on Wednesday, and, and seeing the legacy of, of faith is, is children giving testimony of the, of the work of, of their father in, in ministry for all of these, these decades. And, and interestingly, as, as I heard them describe his availability and his care and his love for them, I thought to myself, I was like one of his children. I was like, everyone, everyone felt similarly in that regard. Oh, what an amazing gift that is. You know, not everybody has that, that gift. Do you know the Lord gives, he gives people with gifts that can reach thousands and thousands of people, and then he gives some gifts that reach a few. There are different levels of vineyards that the Lord gives us to work in. He's portioned out our gifts and the allotments and the lines of our life differently, and it's all according to Christ's a measure. He wants us to know that here, but he doesn't want you for one second doubting that you have a gift. Every single one of you in this room has a, has a gift, a gift that's come from the Holy Spirit. And in, in this particular text, he wants to highlight a few of them. And the ones that he wants to highlight are foundational to the church. Did you notice them there? There in verse 11. He highlights apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, there are a number of places throughout the New Testament, including 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and 1 Peter 4 and others, where you can find lists of the spiritual gifts. Some of you probably know those lists uh, pretty, pretty well. This is one of those lists. Notice it's a relatively short list, and it's a somewhat unique list. Now, I, I make that note because, well, I, I run into not a few people who struggle with finding, quote-unquote, finding their spiritual gift. It's, and there is something of a cottage industry uh, in the evangelical world today um, about finding your spiritual gifts. You can take assessments, you can take inventories, you can get a detailed questionnaire, and they'll match you up with your questionnaire and the various gift lists that you find in the New Testament. Now, that can be helpful. That can be helpful. But I think oftentimes it's motivated wrongly and sometimes is unhelpfully narrow. I, I think we can say faithfully that the lists that are given in the Bible with regards to Holy Spirit gifting to, to the church are lists that are not intended to be comprehensive in nature. We can say this because the lists are all different. The lists highlight different things. There's genres of gifts. We see a genre of gifts here that's listed here in these five. That means that if you look at those lists and you say to yourself, I don't think I have a gift. It doesn't mean that it's, you don't have a gift. It just may mean that it's not spelled out X, Y, Z in the Bible in that specific way. There's a broadness to these gifts. These gifts are representative of the, the, the large grouping of gifts that the Holy Spirit can can give. And in this particular text, Paul wants us to know how the church is founded. 
He wants us to know about the gifts that help establish, nurture, and sustain the life of a congregation. And notice he gives us these five apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, this, this list is interesting because those first two apostles and, and prophets were, were given for the advent of the church age. Apostles, of course, Paul himself, apostle to the Gentiles, writing much of the New Testament. The apostles were given a unique role as those who knew Christ were chosen, the twelve chosen by Christ to be his closest partners or associates in, in ministry. And the prophets, those surrounding those associates who were in that first generation of Christ followers were there in order to establish the church, in order to write the New Testament. Without them, we wouldn't have a New Testament. The Lord used them in a special way, but they're not still around. The apostles and the prophets were there for, well, a season of time, a period. With When the apostles died, the office of apostle died with them. Because... What they were committed to was the founding of the church. What they were called to was the writing of the New Testament. When that was complete, there was no need for the continuation of that role. And so notice what we have next in the list. Evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, what are these? Well, these are the normative work of the church. It's the normative, ongoing work of, of the church. The sharing of the gospel, the caring for the flock. The preaching and teaching of the truth of the Word of God. This is a normative expression of what the church looks like. Now you test me on this, but if you were to go back to the book of Acts and you were to read your way through the book of Acts, what you would find is apostles and prophets leading the way in frontier ministry. Going into new areas, like they, they go into Samaria, they go into Gentile territory. You know what you would usually see? You'd usually see gifts of tongues, healings. You'd see frontier, expressions of ministry, and then the church would be established. And what would Paul do? What would, what would John Mark do? What would Barnabas do? What would they be committed to? They would be committed to raising up elders. And what would you see happen? You'd see those tongues and prophecies and, and gifts. Of it. You'd see it diminish, and you'd see the establishment of the church begin to, to grow in that region. And then they'd go to another region. You know, Paul, he was a serial church planter. He didn't know how to do anything else. Constantly given to this work. Well, there's something of the rhythm here. And he's saying, how is the church founded? How is the church sustained? It's founded through apostles and prophets. And then the normative working of the church is through evangelist pastors and, and teachers. This is the church's ministry. Now, this is the church's ministry. Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, well, pastor, um, you've Managed to talk about yourself a little bit today with regards to gifts and callings. What about for those who aren't necessarily called into full-time vocational ministry? Uh, these collection of gifts that are actually mentioned here are primarily word-based, word-delivery gifts as you look at them. Well, I want you to see that Paul is teaching us something very important here because it's sometimes the tendency of the church, and maybe you've seen this, to think that the ministry of the church is happening up front and we're here just to receive it. 
There's a notion that goes on in the church along those lines. That we have paid, we've got the paid professionals. They're the ones doing the ministry for us, and, and we come to receive from the ministry. I want you to see that that is not biblical in the way that Paul is writing here in Ephesians chapter 4. Because notice, why do you have apostles and prophets and shepherds and, and teachers? Why are they there? Notice verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints. It's a purpose clause. The goal is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, pastors, elders, deacons, they're not here doing all of the ministry. They're here to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's their role. That's, that's their calling. Uh, they're here to raise up, to train uh, to, to mentor, uh, in order that the myriad of gifts within the body of Christ would be released. It, one of the things that's so marvelous, actually, in this particular season of time in which we're in, as we're destroying the church, as you can see, is how many gifts are at work. How many gifts are at work? That's wonderful. Seeing people gifted in carpentry and, and expertise and technical ways, in processes and systems, in, in media and, and in arts, and well, in things that I know nothing about. Things that I can assure you, you do not want me a part of. It's wonderful this week to meet with members in this congregation, some of which have been very ill, of which I've, I, I actually went to one of those meetings because it had been several weeks since I'd been in touch with this particular member, and I was thinking to myself, oh, I, I, I should have been in touch sooner. I, sh I should have been in touch sooner. And as I'm sitting with this uh, member, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I, 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 I hope I've not been negligent as a, as a shepherd in caring for this situation and apologize. And and, and then in response, he's like, oh, what are you talking about? So-and-so was just here yesterday meeting with me in the church. And so-and-so brought me a meal the, the night before last. And then so-and-so was doing this. You, you, mean, you mean the church was ministering? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. It's wonderful, isn't it? That's what the body of Christ is all about. You see, you don't want me bringing a casserole to your house. You, you, I promise you, the culinary ungiftedness of yours truly is not something you want to experience. Gifts of generosity, gifts of encouragement. I'm stunned by your letters that you write, many of which I've received over the years. The kindness that I've, I've seen poured out for the needs within the, the body of, of Christ. It's like having a front row seat to see the Spirit at work. You know, I could go on and on and on, but you get the point, don't you? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Yeah, you know, when we talk about gifts, and we even talk about equipping the saints for the work of ministry, one of the things that often happens is... We get tangled up inside of ourselves. We want to know what our gift is. 
No, specifically, what our, our gift is. And we have an idea as to how we want to use the gift. It almost never works out the way that we think it will, which is part of the Lord's work. And trusting that to Him. One of the ways that we sabotage our gifts and even the use of our gifts is we, we compare our gifts. You know, I mean, we compare our gifts. We, you know, we would, we would be at work in the body of, you know, so-and-so has ten talents. I just have one. I just have one talent. I, there's nothing. You know, if I could just preach like Harry Reader, right? Oh, if I could just, if I could just, if I could, do you find that in you? A comparison, again, is a, a robber. It's a robber of the gift of God's grace. In you. Do you see, I don't need Harry's gifts. And you don't need one another's gifts because, well, you have their gifts in the body of Christ. Harry's gifts are, you see, my gifts because we're one in, in Christ. And, and my gifts are, are your gifts, and your gifts are are my gifts because we are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we are. We are a unified, diversely gifted body. And we need the exact portion of gifts that Christ has given to you. Christ has not made a mistake about the gifts that he's given to you. Let me ask you this, though. Are you using them? Are you using the gifts? Some of you really need to ask that question of your heart. Are you using the gifts which the Lord has given you for the glory of Christ and the good of His church? I was deeply hardened, encouraged a couple of weeks ago when a report, we did some research to figure out how many people here at Cornerstone are, are serving in some way that is recognizable. Uh, some team, some volunteer role, some place within the body. Now, there's much service that goes on that's informal, which is wonderful, but there's a lot of formal service that goes on, on too. And I, you, you always hear, and actually, somebody had said this to me recently, well, you know, you know, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That's what's going on. Oh, okay. It just didn't pass the smell test for me. And as we did the research... We got the report and we ran the numbers and we deeply encouraged that well, well over 50% of the congregation is involved in a recognizable volunteer role within Cornerstone. It's marvelous. It's way, quote unquote, above the average. More than 30% are involved in more than one role within the body. That's remarkable. That's above and beyond what would even be normal in terms of of numbers, but what that also means, as encouraging as that is, it means that probably over half of the congregation isn't. And you have a gift. And you have a gift. The Lord has given you a gift. Now, I recognize those informal aspects of ministry, very real. And that may be where you are best employed in serving the kingdom of Christ today. But ask yourself and your heart. Are you using that gift?
for Christ and his church. Right now, listen to what the Lord is bringing to your heart, to your mind. Are you using your gifts? And for the body of Christ? You know, when you see this text from the church's master to the church's ministry to, to the great variety of gifts, you, you see the church's, well, the beauty of its mission. You know, why at the end of the day does the Lord want to equip the saints for the work of ministry? You know, you know, you know Christ could have just done all this with the snap of his finger. Why did he decide to use you and, and me? It wasn't for a lack of power or lack of authority. This is his, his MO. This is, this is his plan. This is his plan A to use you and me in the work of, of the Spirit. Why did, he, why did he do that? Because, well, you know this to be true. He wants you to grow. He wants you to grow. He's committed to your, your growth. Did you notice that in, in the text? We equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He wants you to grow into maturity. He wants you to, wants you to become more like Christ. Haven't you noticed that when you get to work in the work of the church and its mission that you grow? Haven't you noticed when you're on the frontier edge of faith-stretching work that you find yourself more dependent on the Spirit, more stretched beyond the areas of your comfort, utilizing spiritual muscles that haven't been used in a long time, and you find that you're spiritually better for it? Haven't you found that? Why has the Lord given you a grace gift? So that you could bury it? No, so that you can exercise it. That you would grow, that the church would grow. That we would together grow more into the likeness of Jesus. That we would quit being children. That's what he says here. You know, yesterday I was at a baseball tournament and little Lila was with us. Little Lila's a little over two years old. She's a busy thing. And, you know, when you're with a two-year-old watching a a baseball game, it means that you're watching the two-year-old and not the game. She was everywhere. And, and, you know, you turn her this way and that way, and, and, then, and then you put this in front of her and that in front of her. Anything to just sort of keep her somewhere within the range of controllable. Tossed to and fro, you see. By every wave, by every wind. You probably know churches that are like two-year-olds. They go after whatever is the last flashy thing. Whatever the new movement is, whatever the fancy approach is, they're like two-year-olds. They're running from one thing to the next. Do you know what happens when, when you grow up? You find solid ground on which to stand. There's a steadiness that begins to take over your heart. There's a, there's a unity. You're not pushed to and fro. You know what you learn to do? Notice what the text says. You learn to speak the truth in love. I bet sometimes you feel tossed to and fro when you watch the news, don't you? It happens. When you're looking out at the culture, things aren't going the way that you think that they should, whatever that means. And then what helps you? What helps you? 
the truth. The truth spoken in love. That's what helps you. That's where maturity comes back. And you go, ah, oh, yes. That's what's true. Do you see, not only is this mission to grow into the maturity of Christ, the measure by which we understand the church's growth in Christ comes when we see the qualities of the church at work. Are we a congregation that's speaking the truth in love with one another? Do you show up in your home fellowship group and do you just fret about the world? Or you look at things and you wring your hands and you, you leave that group more anxious when, than when you began? Or is this a group that says, let's keep our eyes on Christ. Let's look at the truth. Let's speak it to one another into each other's lives and hearts in love. And you're walking out and you're cascading in the light as you'd come in in the darkness. That's the health of a congregation where each part it says is working together. I'm not in rivalry with you. I don't need what you have. I want to build you up. You want to build me up. We together, working together, building each other up in, in love. That's what a healthy church looks like. Do you know when we follow out the mission of, of Christ in the world, listening to the truth and then speaking the truth in, in love, we begin to find ourselves experiencing so much more joy because we become self-forgetful then. And as we have been trying to live this dream or that dream or according to that agenda or this agenda or make this power move and that power move to get all of our ducks in a row fretting about the things of the world and even when we get those things, we can't enjoy them because of the nature of the anxiety that we've built up in the center of our being. And then someone says to you, you know, you really should just release all that to Christ. Because only what you do for Him is ultimately that which remains. And friends, that's the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a church that actually is founded, well, on the cornerstone, you see. A church that actually lives up to its name. It's not tossed to and fro, but it's founded upon a rock that doesn't move. Jesus is on the throne today. The dust of earth sits on the throne of heaven. And he's not going anywhere. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And many have prognosticated the death of him and the death of his church. Gone are they. He remains. The church will outlive its victors. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Speak the truth in love. And let all of us, by the grace gifts given to us, work together, building each other up in love. Oh, Father in heaven, we would pray that that kind of mission, the kind of steely clarity of the mission that Paul gives us here for the church of Jesus Christ would be inescapable and unavoidable for the followership of Jesus Christ here at Cornerstone and in the church at large. Let us not be children 
but help us to grow into the full stature of Christ, into mature manhood. Would, O Lord, we be in the generation in which you have placed us, your witness bearers to a world that is pushed in all directions but the right one. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through you. Would this truth be our truth, which we would shout from the mountaintops in love and live in accordance to you. Be the testimony that you use to draw the nations to yourself. Lord, hear this prayer, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.